And the title of our lesson is A Biblically Accurate View of Creation. A Biblically Accurate View of Creation. And we're really focusing on Genesis chapter number 1. Let's begin by reading the chapter. Now I'm going to ask everyone to stand with me, if you would please. Open your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, and everybody who is physically capable of standing to read in honor of the Word of God. We're going to begin with the first verse of Genesis 1. We will stop at chapter 2, verse 3. All of chapter 1, and we'll stop at chapter 2, verse 3. And if you don't mind, we'll read this alternatively. We'll let men lead and ladies follow. Men and then ladies from 1, 1, Genesis 1, 1 to Genesis 2, 3. Let us begin. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. In the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place. And let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed for his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven, to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days, and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven, to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heaven, to give light upon the earth, and to rule over the day, over the night, to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales, and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Over the earth, see, the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God created he man. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, 
and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And said, herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything on the earth. And it was for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Thank you very much. You may, you may be seated. Very kind and patient of you to tolerate that. But now that we've had a reading of the first chapter of Genesis, uh, arguably one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture for many reasons, Amen. what we want to do is we want to step back and we want to try to conceptually look at the main elements of this chapter. Now we could digress and go into a detailed verse-by-verse study of Genesis chapter 1. And we would be here for a very long time. And that is a worthwhile project. But that's not today's purpose. Today's purpose is to step back a bit, look at it as a whole, and identify the key concepts that are central to being able to get the broad picture of what creation was like. How did God do it? How did it happen? How is it described? What does it mean? What are the major concepts, the major pieces of information that we need to derive from this? And how does that affect our worldview today? And how does that affect how we look at the remainder of the Bible? Now, of course, there are many skeptics of Scripture as a whole. And there are plenty of people today who would argue that what we just read is a myth. It is not true at all. It is just a story, just a fanciful story, something of a fairy tale, if you will. For interest's sake, and for a basis of comparison, and this does have a bit of a point to it, as time will tell later on in our lesson, I'd like you to look at a few creation myths from other cultures, other civilizations, just for interest's sake. So let's start, I'm going to give you just a very short reading of the Egyptian creation myth. What did the ancient Egyptians believe? Of course, they were pagan. What do they believe about creation? Well, it goes something like this. Let me read it for you. According to the ancient Egyptian myth, the world was created from the primeval waters of chaos by the god Ra. Ra created himself by uttering his own name. And then he created Shu and Tefnut by spitting or sneezing. Shu and Tefnut then gave birth to Geb and Nut, who then gave birth to Osiris, Set, Isis, and Nephethys. Now that doesn't mean a lot to us, but you could summarize it. I've given you one short summary sentence. It all began when Ra spit. And he created Shu, which is air, and Tefnut, which is moisture. Well, now all of that, of course, seems rather fanciful, and I'm pretty confident that's nonsense. But it's kind of interesting nonsense, perhaps. Well, how about the Greeks? All of us have heard of the ancient Greeks, right? There's a lot of admirable things we can say about the Greeks, I suppose. How did the Greeks view creation? What kind of a creation myth did they have? Well, it goes like this. Are you ready? In the beginning, this is according to the the ancient Greeks, in the beginning there was only chaos, the gaping emptiness. Chaos gave birth to Erebus, which is darkness, and Nyx, which is night. Erebus slept with his sister Nyx, and out of this union, Ether, the bright upper air, and Himera, the day, emerged. Afterward, feared by everyone but her brother, night fashioned a family of haunting forces all by herself. Meanwhile, 
Gaia gave birth to Uranus, the starry sky. Uranus became Gaia's husband, surrounding her from all sides. Together they produced two sets of children, the three one-eyed Cyclops and the twelve Titans. Well, that's what the Greeks thought. Again, rather fanciful story, and there are variations, of course. But how about another one, just for interest's sake, so we get a sense of the uh, creation myths around that are out about there from the non-Christian and the non-Hebrew world. How about this one? So we live in North America. How about this one? Let's go to the Cherokees. So the Cherokees, they began with a crowded animal world. So how did the Cherokee India, uh, creation myth go? Well, I'll read it for you. In the long time ago, when everything was all water, all the animals lived up above, beyond the stone arch that made the sky. But it was very much crowded. All the animals wanted more room. The animals began to wonder what was below the water. And at last, Beaver's grandchild, little water beetle, offered to go and find out. Water beetle darted in every direction over the surface of the water, but could find no place to rest. There was no land at all. Then water beetle dived to the bottom of the water and brought up some soft mud. This began to grow and spread out on every side until it became an island which we call the earth. Afterward, this earth was fastened to the sky with four cords, but no one remembers who did this. We do not know who made the first plants and animals. After the first plants and animals, men began to come to the earth. At first, there was only one man and one woman. He hit her with a fish. In seven days, a little child came down to the earth. So people came to the earth. They came so rapidly for a time, it seemed as though the earth could not hold them all. Well, that's the Cherokee creation myth, for what it's worth, which is probably not much, but it's interesting. So we'll see that it all began with a little water beetle. Now, as we think about Scripture and return to creation according to the Bible, what we want to do is consider the essential elements of the creation narrative and we want to under, uh, look at these as they have been traditionally understood. Now, what you need to understand is that there is a standard way that Genesis chapter 1 was read and understood that goes back to the days of Paul and Peter all the way up until the 1800s. So if we go from ancient times, and we could even go beyond ancient times, Paul and Peter, we could go back to the days of Moses or the back to the days of Elijah, we could go from the, basically the beginning of the Hebrew world, the Hebrew worldview, on through all of the Christian era, up until the 1800s, there was one pretty much standard way of looking at Genesis chapter 1. And I want, you think, I want you to think a little bit about the authority of Scripture and the importance of the authority of Scripture as we consider the discussions that we're going to go in today. So this reminds me of a bit of a story regarding the authority of Scripture and the power of Scripture. Turns out there was a young street preacher, and he was preaching one day on the street, and up came to him sort of a, another young man who was sort of a vagabond and scraggly looking, scruffy looking. And the pre street preacher said to him, young man, young man, my friend, can I give you the gospel of Jesus? Oh, no, no, I'm not much interested in that. Well, perhaps I could pray for you, brother. Oh, no, no, I'm not interested in that. Well, is there anything I can do for you? Well, hmm, now that you mention it, that Bible looks interesting. Can I have a look at that? So the preacher showed him his Bible, and he thumbed through a few pages. And the vagabond, the young vagabond man said, Tell you what, uh, I'll take that Bible if you don't mind. And the preacher says, Well, why would you want the Bible if you don't want the gospel of Christ and you don't want me to pray for you? Why would you be interested in the Bible? He said, well, well, I noticed that those pages are kind of thin. I could rip them out one at a time and roll them up and it'd make a really great smoke. So the preacher says, all right, tell you what. I'll let you take the Bible if you promise me this. When you take a page out, before you roll it up and smoke it, you read it. He says, okay, all right, I'll do that. So he gives him the Bible, and off he goes. Well, about six months go by, and the vagabond comes up again, except this time he doesn't look like a vagabond. He's clean and well-groomed, and 
He's really got his life together. And he says, hey there, preacher, do you remember me? Oh, I'm not sure I do. I was that guy you gave me to that Bible some months ago. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, now I do remember. He said, well, what happened? Your life has really turned around. He said, well, it worked out this way. I smoked Matthew, and then I smoked Mark, and then I smoked Luke, but John smoked me. <laughs> the point of the story is that there's authority in the Word of God. There's a serious point behind that, that, that tale. There's authority in the Word of God, and that's where we need to always stand. Now, those of us that have, have been reading the Bible for a long time, we may have a sense and we may have a, this belief that we really are under the authority of the Word of God. But that may not be as true as what we'd like to believe. Because I, I would like to assert that a plain reading of Scripture should stand on its own. Now, this has a lot to do with what, we're gonna, what people do and what we think about Genesis chapter number 1 and what we do with the rest of Scripture. So these preliminary thoughts... Let's look a little further into this area. Now, as we think about the essential elements of the Genesis creation narrative, we want to think about our first point. Number one, the first item is this. God is presupposed. He's presupposed, and the world was a fiat creation based on His spoken word. Now, there are a number of places in Scripture we could go to show that it was the spoken word that produced the word of God in a manner that was remarkable. All things came from nothing, simply by God's word. God spoke, and out of nothing came everything, based on God's word. Now, I'll just read one verse that emphasizes this. There's a couple on your outline. In Hebrews 11.3, it goes like this. Read this very carefully with me. Hebrews 11.3. It says, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of the things which do appear. The things which are seen were not made of the things which do appear. In other words, there is no pre-existing material from which all things came to pass. God created everything out of absolutely nothing by the mere word of His power of His word. A fiat creation. Second point, and this is quite critical, and we're going to come emphasize this somewhat today. In seven literal days, all things were completed in heaven and earth. Seven days, as you and I understand days. Seven literal days, all things were complete, completed in heaven and earth. And we'll come back to that. Third item. The Bible genealogies teach us that the earth is young, about 6,000 years of age. The earth is relatively young, about 6,000 years of age. Now, the age of the earth can be determined essentially from the genealogies found in chapter 5 of Genesis in chapter 11 of Genesis. Now you already know that there are many who believe that the earth is not relatively young. It is not 6,000 years old, but it is multiplied millions of years old. Perhaps even a billion or two. That is a very common assumption. And sad to say, it is very common among many Christian believers. And indeed, it is even common among some kingdom Israel believers that the earth is millions of years old, not anywhere near 6,000 years old. And that is not a good circumstance for our movement. Now, upon what basis do they make this argument? Well, there are several. But regarding these genealogies in chapter 5 and chapter 11, let me make a couple of quick comments that are useful for you to reflect on if you're not familiar with this particular line of reasoning and the arguments that can be raised. The genealogies of chapter 5 and chapter 11 do not contain any gaps. Now, some will say, well, okay, Genesis chapter 5 says that you've got Adam, and then you've got Seth, and then you've got the next one, and the next one, the next one. 
Some are going to raise the point and say, oh, those, that list of names from Adam and Seth on down, those are only some of the gentlemen. Maybe there were a lot of other people in between that aren't even mentioned. And so there's lots of gaps. And so instead of, you know, 10 generations or 15 generations, there were, you know, a thousand generations, maybe 2,000 generations, maybe a hundred thousand. Who knows how many generations they say. Genesis 5 and 11 are only the highlights. Just a few names scattered in there for our edification. Well, that is not possible. The plain reading of Genesis 5 and 11 really don't allow for that. The specific nature of the reading just doesn't allow for that to be a possibility. There are not gaps of unstated generations. Those that argue that, they, that there are, they're doing that because they want the earth to be very, very old. Why do they want the earth to be very, very old? Well, we'll come back to that. So this is not true. Now, just real quick, I can say this. Even if there were gaps in the genealogy, we still know the exact number of years between the two names. For example, if you go to Genesis chapter 5, you'll find that there is 130 years between Adam's, Adam and Seth. It's very plain. You can't read it in an honest way and say that there is anything but 130 years between Adam and Seth. That's how much older Adam was than Seth. Period. That's it. You can't really do anything else and test lest you really twist it all completely out of context into some sort of pretzel. So we still know the exact number of years between the two names, any two names. It goes on. It's the same with all the other gentlemen. Thus, we know the exact number of years in total. No time is gained by trying to insert generations. It's nonsense. Others will say, well, we can add a little time. If you're really a, a sort of a textual person, you could say, I, I really don't like the, the way the list that the King James Bible gives me because that came from the Masoretic text. So I'm going to go to the Septuagint text. The Septuagint is the Old Testament in Greek, not in Hebrew. I'm going to go with that. Well, you could do that. And it does raise a few other little a few issues that we'd have to discuss. Now, I don't make that argument myself. I prefer the Masoretic. But that, those changes that the Septuagint introduces only introduces about 1,500 extra years by inserting one or two extra names. The earth is still very young. And that's an important point. It doesn't matter really what text you go with, you've got a relatively young earth. Now let's go on to the next area of this argument. Because I've, what I've given you now, I've given you three essential elements of the Genesis creation narrative that's terribly important. Number one, God's presupposed, and you've got a fiat creation. Number two, we have seven literal days of creation. And number three, the Bible teaches that the earth is relatively young, probably about 6,000 years of age, whether or not you want to quibble over a few of the genealogies. But what is the challenge that lies before us in our time? The challenge is the modern secular mind. The modern secular mind. And what are the challenges that the modern secular mind offers? Well, let's go through them. Are you ready? These are some important thoughts you need to consider. Number one, the most obvious modern secular challenge is that no divine being exists. Thus, all things came into existence by themselves. Somehow, everything just popped into existence. Just, it wasn't there and nothing was there and now something is there. That's the first idea. No divine being exists. Number two, if you get past that, the modern secular challenge says that the earth is far older than 6,000 years. Now this idea that the earth is far, far older than 6,000 years, that it's multiplied millions of years perhaps, was popularized not until the 1800s. So we went literally thousands of years without this general idea among Hebrew and Christian minds. It began really in 1823 when William Buckland published his book, Relics of the Diluvian Age. And then Charles Lyell in 1830 published his book, Principles of Geology. So in the first half of the 1800s, these gentlemen began to offer 
a geological argument that said the earth is not the earth is not young it's very very ancient millions of years old perhaps and they made their arguments based on the secular worldview that says well god probably doesn't even exist and if we look at the world we're going to we, there's another way we can look at the world to 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 make it look like it's very 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 old of course, it wasn't long after that, in the 1800s, we have Charles Darwin with his famous work, which I don't really need to comment much, but of course he famously popularized the idea that man came into existence without a creator in his book Origin of Species in 1859, and modern evolution is thus born. So it's critical that you understand in your thinking that these, this idea of, of a very ancient earth came relatively recently in human history in the Christian West and in the Hebrew world, Hebrew mind and the Christian mind. Next, of course, we have the idea of what is typically called deep time. I don't know if you've ever heard of deep time, but deep time is an absolute necessity to sustain this secular worldview. You can't have the secular worldview without deep time. And it really goes back to the the, 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 the issues raised by Charles Darwin, who popularized evolution. If man evolved by slow incremental changes, of course, you've got to have a lot of time for that to occur. A couple thousand years isn't going to be enough time. So we've got to have millions of years for this to occur. And that's what we need. And so that's what we're going to find if we just keep looking and searching and studying hard enough I'm sure we'll find those millions of years where we need to. Thus the geologists began to find evidence for the time they were looking for. And then of course we find what is popularly known to support the idea of deep time. We have famously radiometric dating. And everyone bows to radiometric dating. Oh yes, we have radiometric dating. We have found the evidence for deep time. That began about the 1930s, 40s, and 50s with carbon-14 dating. Ah, carbon-14 dating proves that the earth is millions of years old. Well, closer evidence. We now know that carbon-14 dating works quite well for maybe 500 or 1,000 years. After that, it begins to get wildly unreliable. So we have another radioactive dating method. Carb, instead of carbon-14, we'll go with, oh, how about potassium-argon dating? Or strontium-rubidium radiometric dating? And all the other types of radioactive decay dating methods, which if you're into all that sort of thing, which maybe a few of you are, you'll begin to, you can read and discover that all people bow to radiometric dating, but of course you shouldn't. Because radiometric dating has been developed, it has been developed to support the premise. Now, I don't want to bore you with all the details there, but I do want to just throw out this idea that within a culture, within a culture, it's very common for this to occur. One of the, one of the deep thinkers that really developed this idea that a society develops the scientific hypotheses necessary to support their premise, okay, not the other way around. One of the first men to really emphasize this well was a gentleman in a <clears throat> named Francis Parker Yockey. He wrote a book called, Pastor Gaiman, Imperium. <laughs> and in it, he emphasized the idea that science and technology, particularly te science, by the way, there is a difference between science and technology. Technology is applied principles. You can trust technology to a large degree to be valid because technologists have to actually make it work. Whereas scientists who are in the abstract, it doesn't need to work. You can just theorize all you want all day long and they assume that science and technology are joined like this and often they're not. The engineers that make things work are dealing need to have results that work. Whereas the abstract scientists in the laboratories 
can craft their hypotheses and devise their experiments to get the results they want so that they can go forward with the premise and demonstrate and, and support the, the premise that is the one the premise that they're looking for, which is exactly what's happened with radiometric dating. At any rate, what I'm telling you is this. We, can, we need to think about where we're going to put our trust and our confidence. And as a society, we're too quick to say that the scientists are always right. Now, as you know, it's getting, our eyes are starting to come awake on, on this topic to some degree. As we all know, the scientists who have given us certain things like uh, vaccines are always wonderful. We're now beginning to say, well, maybe these scientists aren't right. Or the scientists who say the earth is about to be destroyed any time now from global warming, well, maybe those scientists aren't really right. Maybe they really have an agenda. Well, it, it, it overlaps into other areas as well. So it's not my point here this morning to really beat up on science. My point is to say we've got to get the cart before the horse. And the, the cart before the horse is the authority of Scripture, which is where we're going to be returning to here in just a few moments as we continue this discussion. Now, as we continue our thoughts, let's look at another quick thought that some of you have heard of. Many of you have heard of the Big Bang Theory. Now, to support the points we've already made, that no divine being exists, that the earth is far older than 6,000 years, and that man came into existence all by himself, and that we have deep time, all of that fits into the necessity of something that is very much like what is called the Big Bang Theory. Now, the Big Bang Theory, thus, is essentially a necessity. So what is the Big Bang Theory? Let me just comment a little bit on that. First of all, it's a myth. The Big Bang Theory is simply a myth. It is a myth not developed by men who are engineers and technologists, but by scientists who deal in the abstract, in completely abstract, and do not have to make their ideas work in the real world. I hope you can see the difference. They do not have to make their ideas work in the real world. So this myth of theoretical physics, emphasis on theoretical physics, uses newly invented words such as inflation, quarks, and gluons to describe things that have no evidence of existence. Now I'm going to read for you a description, not written by me, a description of the Big Bang Theory as written by an advocate, a theoretical physicist, who is an advocate of the Big Bang Theory. Let me just share with you what he has to say. Are you ready? This will take just a couple of minutes. Here's what he says. Are you ready for the, his explanation of the Big Bang? He says this, quote, Let's start with the general framework 13.77 billion years ago. Hmm. Our universe was incredibly hot. A temperature of over a quadrillion degrees. And incredibly small, about the size of a peach. Astronomers suspect that when our cosmos was less than one second old, it went through a period of incredibly rapid expansion known as inflation. This inflation event was perhaps the most transformative epoch ever to occur in the history of our universe. In less than a blink, our universe became incredibly larger, enlarging by a factor of 10 to the 52nd power. When this rapid expansion phase wound down, whatever caused inflation in the first place, we're not sure what, decayed, flooding the universe with matter and radiation, we're not sure how. In a few minutes, literally, the first elements emerged. Prior to this time, the universe was too hot and too dense for anything stable to form. It was just a giant mix of quarks, which are the fundamental building blocks of atomic nuclei, and gluons which are the carriers of a strong nuclear force. But once the universe was healthy and a dozen minutes old, it had expanded and cooled enough that the quarks could bind themselves together, forming the first protons and neutrons. Those protons and neutrons made the first hydrogen and helium and a little bit of lithium, which went on hundreds of millions of years later to build the first stars and galaxies. From the first formation of the first elements, 
the universe just expanded and cooled, eventually becoming a plasma and then a neutral gas. While we know this broad brush story is correct, we also know that we're missing a lot of details, especially in the time before the formation of the first elements. Some funky physics may have been in operation when the universe was only a few seconds old, and it's currently beyond our theoretical understanding. But that doesn't stop us from trying." Unquote. So there is the myth of the Big Bang. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had to choose between the myth of the Big Bang and the myth of the Cherokees and the water beetle, I might just go with the water beetle. Well, you can make your own decision. <laughs> My point is this. The Big Bang Theory uses terminology. It doesn't have to prove. It defines it in a way that it doesn't really make sense. It's all theoretical. It's all abstract. It does not have to conform to technology and engineering where it has to work in the real world. It can remain completely abstract and completely mythical. And that's just fine for their purposes and for their, them to voice this upon a general public which isn't going to understand what they're saying. And they like it that way. It uses numbers that are too big to be understood. The numbers are so big as to be meaningless. And the terminology is so vague and unclear that it's also essentially meaningless except that it supports their moral authority to say, we know why the universe is billions and billions of years old, and we know why there is no God. And that's the point of the whole thing. Now, unfortunately, the modern church, including many within the Kingdom Israel movement, have embraced aspects of the secular worldview. And that's where we really need to pause and do some deep thinking on our own part. So there are essentially two leading ways that the modern church, including some within the Kingdom Israel movement, have embraced these ideas of the secular worldview. Going back now again, and I want to call your attention to the time frame at which these ideas were put forth. Going back to the 1800s, we find a gentleman named Thomas Chalmers and John Pye Smith. They developed what is typically called the gap theory. It sometimes is also referred to as the restitution theory. This was put forth in 1840 in the book, Relation of Holy Scripture and Geological Science. A massive gap in time they claim, exists in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. If you'd care to, you might go back to your Bible. Let's recap what we just read a little while ago in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now, the narrative, creation, narrative of creation begins in verse 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, proponents of the gap theory, based on Thomas Chalmers' ideas, argue that the word was, in verse 2, where it says the earth was without form, they say, that should be became without form. They're going to argue that it should read, the earth became without form. And they're going to argue that in these two verses, a massive amount of time went by. And their, their thesis goes something like this. They're going to say, look, there was an ancient, ancient, ancient world that was created... It existed for a long period of time. There were people, maybe angels, all kinds of activity. And then that earth was all wiped out and made void. 
And a new one was started in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. So, Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 and forward, is all a second world, not the beginning, not the first world. And that gap then conveniently allows for millions of years to go by, and that gap then conveniently allows for deep time, and that gap conveniently allows for geological ages to satisfy secular geologists, and that gap conveniently allows for evolutionary biologists and the theory of evolution to satisfy the Darwinists. You see, what Mr. Chalmers and Mr. Smith did is they took the science of their time and they said, we've got to figure a way to fit that into Scripture. Instead of standing on the authority of Scripture, we're going to stand on the authority of science. And we're going to develop a new idea about how to interpret Scripture <laughs> so that we can thus accommodate scientific thought as it is taught today. The abstract scientific ideas of today about creation and about how the world came to be with Scripture. Now they do have verses that they cite. And I've got three of them listed there. We could look at a couple of them. And they've got a few other arguments. Uh, all of their arguments, I believe, are uh, exegetically misleading, or they are just faulty, or just, they, they're just based on um, not, a, not a good understanding of the words that you're reading. For example, they go on to, in Genesis chapter 1, you'll run across the word replenish. Now, people typically assume that the word replenish means refill. And so they'll argue, aha! Adam and Eve were instructed to refill the earth, not just fill it. But if you do a little short word study, you're going to discover the word replenish does not mean refill. It actually means fill. It means fill, not refill. You can check that out in your own time. Other such relatively shallow arguments are made. And, and so we could go to, uh, just for example, and you can look these up on your own time, but for example, if you'd like to read uh, Isaiah 24, I'll read one of their verses that they like, they like to cite. Isaiah chapter 24, verse 1, reads like this. Isaiah 24, verse 1, it says, Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. Now they say, Aha, there you go. That's a verse that connects us back to Genesis chapter 1 and this giant gap. God made a world, then He destroyed it all, and then He made it again in Genesis chapter 1, verse number 2. And here's the evidence. Of course, that is contextually nonsense. Because if you read the rest of Isaiah, the end of Isaiah chapter 23, and the rest of Isaiah chapter 24, you can quickly perceive that this is God's judgment upon the people who were living at the time of Isaiah. It's talking about the city of Tyre. It's talking about the children of Israel. It's, it's judgments that were contemporary to the time that Isaiah was speaking. And to try to wrest that out of that con immediate context is wrong. And so this is true for these verses in Job and Jeremiah as well and some of the other places they like to go. The truth is, these are God's judgments, and these verses are far too vague to establish a new doctrine, a brand new doctrine to accommodate the secular geologists and the secular Darwinists. There are, of course, people who would like to say, well, the gap theory really didn't begin with those guys. It goes back to, oh, Irenaeus or Justin Martyr or... Uh, Augustine. And of course, that isn't true. The passages they like to quote from those early church fathers are even more vague and do not apply. But let's hasten on. Let's go to the other way that people like to get around this idea of a young earth and the authority of Scripture and the idea that God spoke in seven literal days, the, uh, the earth being created in seven days as you and I know it. And this goes to the day-age theory. The day-age theory is sometimes called the conquerdistic theory, kind of a you know, sophisticated sound to it. 
but it was originally developed in 1884 by Arnold Guyot. And you might look at the title of his book. The title of his book that he presented it in is Biblical Cosmogony in Light of Modern Science. So you see what he's doing. Even in the title of his book, he's conforming Scripture to science and not the other way around. Do you see? He's got to come up with a new interpretation of Scripture to accommodate the abstract scientific theories of his time, which were very popular with uniformitarianism, Darwinism, and so forth. And of course, this is still a rather popular interpretation. And there are many people who buy into this. Now, they're not bad people. If, you, if there's someone here this morning or someone who's going to listen to this and say, well, Mr. Benson, I'm one of those people. Well, you're not a bad person. I'm not angry at you. I just think you're mistaken. <laughs> I really think you're mistaken. So if you're a, a subscriber to the gap theory, and I've met people who are, they're not evil, bad people, but I think they are mistaken, and I think their mistake has implications that are they're really risky. And the same with the day-age theory. But the day-age theory goes like this. The seven days of, of Genesis are each millions of years long. Pretty popular theory. Now, they cite several different passages you could go to, and they talk about the word day, and they'll say, well, you know, people sometimes use the word day to mean a, a period of time. You know, you could say, hey, Sonny, Back in my day when I was a teenager, I had to walk to school uphill both ways through the snow, or whatever. Well, that's using the word day in a metaphorical sense. doesn't mean a single day. It means a period of time. And they say Scripture does the same thing. Yes, occasionally it does. But the immediate context tells you what kind of a day it is. You just got to read it closely and read it honestly. And not... Try to stretch it for your own agenda. So, the day-age theory has a few places they like to go. One of them they like to go is to 2 Peter 3.8, and many of you will recognize this passage. It's an interesting passage. 2 Peter 3.8, and they'll, we could read that. It says, um, you'll recognize this. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So there's a couple of ways you could interpret that. One is you could say, okay, a day is a thousand years with God. Or vice versa, a thousand years of death is one day with God. Well, you could do that. Of course, if the seven days of creation are each a thousand years, that only gains you 7,000 years, and you've got 6,000 years of history plus the 7,000 years of creation. You're only at 13,000 years old, and that's not going to make the scientists happy, so that's not good enough. Or you could interpret even more metaphorically and just say, well, that verse in 2 Peter 3 is just telling us it's just an undefinable long period of time. A day could be millions, maybe even billions of years. Well, sure, I suppose, but you're not being honest with Scripture. And you're missing the central point of what 2 Peter is trying to tell us. The second point, a point of what Jesus, as Peter is trying to tell us is completely different and not talking about undermining the narrative, the history of Genesis chapter number 1. So the truth is found in this. If you want a real honest assessment, I think there are two passages in Scripture that nail down pretty tight that a day is the day as you and I typically understand it. All right. Now the word day in Hebrew is, is yom. It means to be hot. And it's defined biblically as from one sunset to the next. One sunset to the next. If you'll turn with me to Exodus, you ought to read these verses and really reflect on them. And if I were you, you might consider marking them in your Bible and making some real notes here. Because it turns out in Exodus chapter 20, when we come to the commandments that describe the Sabbath day, it takes us back to creation. And let's read verses 8 through 11 on Genesis chapter number 20. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. Now if we pause, the word day in verse 9 is yom, day, six days. That can only be understood as a day as you and I understand it, a 24-hour period from one daylight period to the next, from one sunset to the next. And then it goes on, 
But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou thy son, thy daughter, etc., etc. And now verse 11. Please pay attention to verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So this is connecting the commandment of remembering your seventh day to the seven days of creation. And it's the same Hebrew word in both cases. So you're really doing, I think, a, a, you know, you're really taking a twist to say that one of those days is metaphorical, the creation day, but the other day is a literal day, because that's not what's going on here. And that would really be a, I mean, I mean these commandments as written, Moses was really misleading the people if it is not both 24-hour days as we would understand it. And, of course, there's arguments that are raised. Some people will say, well, the sun wasn't created until day number four, so how could you have a 24-hour day without the sun? Yeah, but we have light created on day number one. And you only need light. You don't need the sun. All you need is earth and light. Perhaps the light was God's own glory. I don't know. That could be. After all, in Revelation, we discover the glory of God is brighter than the sun. But it doesn't say. And we don't need to know. All we need to know is just accept it. We have light, and we had the earth. And so a day was possible, and it tells us it was a day. The evening and the morning were the first day, which is repeated, and you read that earlier with me this morning. Now, if that isn't enough for you, though, we have a similar reading passage in Exodus 31. If you turn with me to Exodus 31, here's our second witness that ties our day together with the creation day to let us know the creation day really is a day as you and I understand it. In Exodus 31, again, it's discussing the Sabbath. It tells us, I'll break into verse number, well, I guess, well, let's see, let's break into verse number 17. I guess that's pretty good. It says, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. It's the Sabbath. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So the Sabbath day given in a commandment to the children of Israel to rest on the seventh day is connected to the seven days of creation. So I think that the day-age theory is exceptionally weak, and while it satisfies scientific ideas that are really theoretical and have a point to them of trying to undermine Scripture, it does satisfy that, it really sets up points of tension in other places in the Bible. Now third, there's a third way that the modern church has embraced the secular view. Well, there probably is more than three. I've just got three, and we've got time for three, and so these are the three that I'm going to present to you with the time that we've got. So we've got the, the, we have the gap theory, we have the day-age theory, and then we have this idea. It turns out that there's, that there's a distinction that many modern Christians of our time are making within evolution. And they'll say something like this, well, I'm against macroevolution, you know, that Darwinist stuff, but I'm in favor of microevolution. Now, the leading proponent of this distinction is Ken Ham, and he's an, an interesting and sometimes aggravating man. Some of the things that he has written, I, I think, are fine and excellent and useful. Other things, though, I'm, I'm really aggravated about, and this is one of them. So Ken Ham tries to distinguish between macro and microevolution. The purpose of doing this is so that they can argue that all races came from Noah. You know, and this all happened pretty quick. That was only about 4,000 years ago or something like that that Noah had, and we have the great flood. And so they'll say about 4,000 years ago, we had the great flood of Noah, maybe 4,500 years ago, whatever it was, and and bang, out of the three sons of Noah come all these different races of man. You know, the pygmy and the hot and tot, they're a lot like you. Okay? And so that's his idea of microevolution. They said, oh, this Darwinist stuff couldn't be true. But microevolution, that is true. Well, the distinction is nonsense. It's absolute nonsense, and it's meant to justify race mixing. That's the entire purpose of this line of reasoning, so don't fall for that. And you may run into this, and maybe some of you already have. 
Now, with the time remaining, I'd like to emphasize a few final points to sort of close up and summarize our thinking this morning. Let me just ask the question, why is this commitment to authority of Scripture in a young earth so important? It's, it's absolutely very, very important, ladies and gentlemen, for a number of reasons, in my opinion. So why, is there a, why do we need to have a commitment to the authority of Scripture? And why do we need to have a commitment to, the, to a relatively young earth? The traditional understanding was maintained for 1,800 years. Usher and other chronologists confirm all this. Why is that commitment important? Number one, credibility. Why trust any part of the Bible if the very first chapter is misleading? If you read the very first chapter and a plain, simple understanding of the reading of the very first chapter says that God created the earth in seven days in a miraculous manner, and you have to go into that and say, oh, I don't really know. I think we're going to have to kind of massage that a bit. and going to have to look for something that's not really there. We're going to have to really work that over pretty hard. If it's misleading, what's going to prevent you from doing that with the rest of Scripture? Which is exactly what people do. Scripture has no authority. And we can interpolate here, and we can subtract over there, and we can choose this and subtract that, and just do whatever we want, whatever we need. And so Scripture, instead of being a sound book of truth, it just falls apart in your fingers, and the pages are flying all over which way. Because we made a mistake, and we succumbed in Genesis chapter number 1. And the rest of the book, therefore, has no credibility either. Number two, the separation of kinds. Now, repeatedly in Genesis chapter 1, we see the word kind, K-I-N-D. If you can destroy Genesis chapter 1, race mixing becomes easy. Race, the mixing of the races becomes easy. The mixing of the kinds becomes easy to do. Now, I've listed there for you on the outline the verses where the word kind appear, the, the phrase, after his kind. Verse 11, 12, 21, 24, and 25, that phrase, after his kind, is found. And it's a blueprint, it is a pattern, it is a piece of instruction, it is a fundamental piece of an information and instruction that's given to us over and over again in chapter number 1, to tell what is the guiding principle of all the life forms that God creates in the earth, whether it's an oak tree or a rhinoceros or you. And after his kind roughly corresponds to the modern word species. That's a, that's a modern word with a modern definition. But it roughly corresponds to that. Now, third, and I hate to say this, it turns out that the Israel remnant is prone to elevating man's logic above the authority of Scripture. Now, we do this all too frequently in all too many topics across the board over and over again. Now, there may be several reasons why that is so. It is that Kingdom Israel people are open-minded, and they're willing to consider new and fresh ideas when they discover that other religious traditions have told us some lies and falsehoods and have misled us on purpose. Well, that's understanding. And being open-minded is not necessarily a bad quality. But neither should we be empty-minded. We're not so open-minded that our minds are blank. And neither are we so open-minded that we can't succumb and yield to the authority of Scripture. And it's critical that our own logic is not our criteria of truth. My own reasoning ability does not go ahead of what the Scripture says plainly and simply. So we have a wide scattering of inconsistent opinions on a variety of topics in the Israel remnant because we do not honor the authority of Scripture, but we pick it apart endlessly by checking out this word or that word or this interpolation or that little insertion or deleting this because, oh, that's not in the original text or this or that or thus and on and on and on and on and on we go. And it all begins in Genesis chapter 1. And finally, as I think I've already articulated, adopting the day-age or gap theory does reduce conflict with secular science. 
So yeah, now you're, now you're in tune with the same people who are telling us that global warming is about to destroy the earth in the next five years. Yes, you're, you're, you're in tune with the same people who say that. And you're in tune with uh, the same people who are telling us to get that jab. Yep. You're in tune with the secular, secular scientific world, the theoretical scientific world, not necessarily the engineers and the tech, technology people who have to actually make the plane fly and make the brakes in the car actually work. So you've reduced conflict with secular science, but you've increased conflict with other portions of Scripture. And so we have this confusion that enters in. So I conclude by arguing and praying that you will consider and make mental notes and maybe physical notes in your Bible that Genesis chapter 1 is critical to our understanding and a plain reading of it and an honest reading of it within the context of Scripture and Scripture alone without all this other pressure that's been added in the last 150 years is the way to go. So we have a biblically accurate view of creation. We can recognize the authority of God's Word. And we can make proper decisions about other points of doctrine and theology that are going to be important as we move forward. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your time and for your patience. And I pray that this has been of some value to you. God bless you all.